Hear the word of the Lord from John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, like I said, we're picking up kind of right where we left off with this passage. Last week we went through the first uh, 11 or so verses of John chapter 15. And today we're going to sort of resume that passage. Uh, and unfortunately, the first part is pretty essential to understanding the rest of it. And, and rather than going back and re-preaching, because uh, we would be here for a couple hours if I did that, I, I just want to encourage you to go back and check out the podcast from last week. Uh, I hope... I hope that it's a blessing to you. It, it's really been something the Lord's been, been stirring up in my heart. Uh, and so be sure to go back, listen backwards to the podcast, maybe re-listen to this, and maybe, maybe it'll make some more sense. Um, but for those of you who weren't with us last week, I don't want to leave you in the dark, okay? So I'm going to quickly fly over last week's, what we kind of covered, uh, because here in John chapter 15, Jesus gives us a pretty big statement. He says, I am the, the vine, and you are the branch. Now he's speaking to his disciples here, his close friends and followers who have been with him for the last two or three years of his ministry. And what he's telling his disciples is he's making this uh, analogy or using this illustration of a vine and a branch. He's saying, apart from me, you can't do anything. In fact, that's what he says in verse 4. He says, apart from Jesus, apart from being attached to the vine, branches can do nothing. 
can't produce fruit, can't produce leaves, anything like that. And, and as we go through this passage, what we saw is that God, who is the vine dresser, uh, is all about the fruit. It's not just about having a bunch of branches come off the vine, but having branches that produce fruit. And so God, who is the vine dresser, comes and he trims and he nurtures and he prunes the vine and its branches in order to create a larger harvest. Now, according to God, as he de defines what fruitfulness is, what it means to bear fruit, he, he does not characterize it as external things. For example, he doesn't say go bear fruit and serve and read your Bible and, uh, you know, go do missionary work. He doesn't say that specifically, although th those are some implications of the fruit that he produces. Ultimately, what God is after is, is something deeper, Something deeper than just a visible, external thing. He's getting to the heart. Because the heart is the epicenter of all human beings. The heart is the place where all words and thoughts and actions flow from. So therefore, God knows that a changed heart will inevitably change everything else. In fact, this is what it means to experience gospel change. It's not just about showing up on Sundays or doing Bible studies. Gospel change happens first at the heart level and then works itself outward. So according to God, what it means to bear fruit, if you just survey, I think it's verses 9 and 10, uh, in those two verses, five times we see the word love. God is after a heart that loves a heart that first and foremost loves God, but as an expression of love for God, disperses towards others. Now here's the cool thing. The more fruit that we bear in our lives, the more our heart becomes loving, that we become loving people, the more God is glorified. And, and for God to be glorified, it means that he's celebrated, he's honored, he's promoted. And the reason why God is glorified is because he is the one that cultivates it. Again, this loving heart doesn't come from within us. It comes from God. It's like a farmer who gets a ribbon at the state fair. Right? He brings in his produce, maybe a big pumpkin or whatever it is, and he brings it forward, and the judges look at it, and, and the pumpkin gets ascribed a ribbon, but really the ribbon is going to the farmer because it's the farmer who nurtured it and cared for it and pruned it and grew it to the point of where it was noteworthy. It's the same way with our hearts, the fruit that we bear in our lives, and with, with God. That God is the vine dresser who pours his love out on the vine, who is Jesus. Who Jesus then pours his love into his people, which is us. And as that love flows from the Father to the Son to us, which the Spirit is negotiating all of this. The Spirit is the one going between Father to Son and Son to us. The Spirit's at work in all of this. Fruit is produced in our life. And the key to producing fruit in our life, the key to living to our full potential is to abide in God's love. You won't be the best version of yourself without God's love without being deeply connected and rooted to it. In fact, Jesus in verse nine, he invites us into such sweet love. He says, abide in my love. 
Now, the word abide, I went through this last week, and I feel like I need to say something about it. There's, just, there's a sense, there's two ways to think about it. There, there's a passive nature, there's an active nature of abiding. The word abide and the word abode, right, in our boat, this, this, a dwelling place. There's a sense in which we remain close to Jesus, right? We've been placed near to him. We've been grafted into the vine where we stay put. But there's this active call for us that, that in fact, to abide is a command on our life. That means we put forth effort to remain near to Jesus because what happens when we aren't tethered to Jesus is we inevitably drift away. And so there's active role where we abide. We stay put, but we also fight to stay put. Now, the word abide, it's not a word that we throw around a lot in common language, and I think it's been sort of adopted as Christianese. You know what I'm saying? Like words that Christians throw around that make sense to Christians but nobody else, right? Maybe you're, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible and you abide. What is that? There's this Christianese that surrounds the word, and with this is sort of a, an idea, I think it's a flawed idea, that the only way to abide is to, to be in some sort of a, a prayer room for extended hours at a time. Like, like there's a certain threshold of once I get to hour three, that's when I really feel the juices of God's love flowing. Or when I spend so much time in my Bible, that's when I can experience it. But that's not the case. To abide is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day interaction with Jesus. It's, it's happening throughout our entire day. Now, last week, I spoke a little bit about how prayer helps us to abide in Jesus, to, to remain deeply connected to the source of this love. But I don't think I talked about this, how prayer can also be the catalyst for abiding in this love. You see there in verse 7, Jesus gives us incredible permission to ask whatever you wish. Now, I think for some of us, we hear this thing about abiding in God's love, being connected and experiencing this day in, day out, moment by moment. And we're like, man, that would be nice. I just don't know how to do it. Now, if that's the case, if this is you and I feel like this is me to some extent, Here's good news. Jesus says that you can come to him and ask whatever you wish. And I think asking for God's help and abiding should be at the top of this list. Now, church, can you imagine the impact that God would have here among his people if collectively... We devote ourselves to crying out to God, God, would you make yourself known, your love known to me, help me to draw from your love moment by moment throughout my entire day. How that would change our lives. And the, the kicker here, the incredible thing about this is that this, this invitation comes with a promise. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So church, let's take God up on this offer. Let's ask relentlessly and unapologetically that we would know what it means to abide with Jesus. Now, a lot more can be said on abiding and how prayer and the relationship there. I'm gonna save some of that for next week because next week we're gonna start a six-week series uh, that's called Pray Like Jesus. We're gonna go through the Lord's Prayer. And I think it'll be a sweet time that really helps us understand what it means to abide in Jesus and how prayer moves us in that direction. But one of the things that we can see here with this invitation and the promise to ask whatever you wish and that God will give it to us, 
This invitation shows us that abiding is not just for the Christians who are on God's A-team. Right? Abiding isn't just for the, the spiritually super mature, the people who have a bunch of scripture memory verses in their, in their brain. It's not for the people, not just for the people in ministry or have some sort of title. Abiding is meant to be a constant interaction between God and his people, all of his people, where we pull on this sustaining love. Now, the more that we learn to depend on Jesus, the more that we learn how to abide, the more mature we become in our faith. Now, this is counterintuitive when you think about it. Because a lot of the times when we think of maturity, we think of independence, right? As kids grow up, we want to see them taking more steps toward independence. You want to get them out of diapers. You want to get them to be able to go to the bathroom by themselves and then put their clothes on and all this stuff. Taking these steps towards being independent, taking steps toward maturity. But in the Christian faith, it's the exact opposite. So often, and I think this probably is the primary sin that we as God's people need to repent of, is that we feel that we can do it on our own. That we want to sever ourselves from Christ. Maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally. The key to Christian maturity is becoming more dependent on Jesus, to draw more and more from the vine. It's not based on what doctrines you understand or what sort of theology you have rattling around in your head. Christian maturity is based on your union and communion with Jesus, the experience of abiding. Because our faith, the Christian faith, is not about a series of doctrines, though those are important. Ultimately, the Christian faith is about relationship with Jesus. Now, here's the thing about relationships. We're going to get to our passage, I promise. I'm, I'm getting you primed up for this. Here's the thing about relationships. Relationships change you. Do you realize that? Relationships change you. The more meaningful the relationship, the more drastic the changes. Uh, before my wife and I were married, actually before we were dating uh, in college, my wife was known for going to bed at 8 p.m. sharp. Uh, she'd be in her jammies. I don't know what kind of college life that is, but in her jammies, ready to go, she's out. All right, and then we start hanging out together, and, and I was notorious for staying out pretty late, two, three in the morning, hanging out with friends, doing homework, that sort of stuff. And the more that we started hanging out, the more my wife started staying up late with us. In fact, I think if, if it were not for our relationship, she would still be going to bed at 8 p.m., right? That sort of relationship changed the way that she operated. But now that we're parents of three kids under four, bed at 8 p.m. sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> right? So in that sense, that relationship with my kids is changing me. Now, that's just a benign example but you've probably seen or experienced profound examples of this with friends and family, maybe even yourself. Right? We've seen change for better or for worse. In fact, Proverbs 13 talks about the friendships, the relationships that we have. It says, when we walk with the wise, we become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. Now perhaps you or, or a friend you know, you've seen this in, in, in life where they started dating someone or a friend that, that brought about bad change. 
I think of uh, the movie, it's an older movie, School of Rock with Jack Black. He's got a buddy in that movie, Ned Schneebly. And it basically kind of captures how Ned has changed due to his relationship with his really uptight and judgmental girlfriend. He went from being a fun-loving, music-enjoying kind of guy to this really tightly wound, joyless guy. And I think that can happen. When we have toxic relationships, we gradually devolve into an empty version of ourselves. Our values, our character, our ideologies can all change based upon who we connect ourselves to. Now, thankfully, relationships can have a positive effect as well. Right? If you get married, at some point you're kind of going to get, you probably put on a little bit of weight, at least I did. Put on a little bit of weight once you get married and then you realize, I got to take care of my body. Right? Your wife starts saying, hey, maybe you should go for a little jog. Right? You become health conscious or you have a kid and you, you have to start making wise financial decisions now. You got to work hard at the job. You have to make, make really sure to, to get a job and to keep a job and, and get that steady uh, income coming in. Or maybe you have a friend or a coworker who pushes you to set goals socially or professionally. You're taking risks. You're breaking the norms. You're changing toward the better version of yourself. And we even see this most, I think, honestly, most oftenly within the context of missional community. Right? These relationships that we have are not just uh, simple friendships. These are friendships that are rooted in the gospel. That means we have a goal together to become more like Jesus, and we're helping one another to do that. And so we see people, their life completely change. In fact... What we see here is is relationships carry a transformative power. Who you are in relationship will change you. Now, this is why Christianity, unlike other religions, offers real heart change. Like it gets to the root. It gets down to the core of who you are and changes you because Christianity is about, ultimately, Christianity is about a relationship with God. Other religions might say you can know about a God or perhaps know some man-made God. But it's only Christianity that offers access to the real, true God, the creator and sustainer of all things through his son, Jesus. In fact, to have a relationship with Jesus is to be linked up with God. In fact, John 14, if you were to go back a chapter from where we're at or where we're eventually going to get to, we'll see that Jesus says, if you know me, then you know my Father. Without a real relationship with the real God, all other, relation, or all other religions become moralism with some sort of spiritual tint to it. And Christianity is not immune to this. If we begin to reduce Christianity to do's and don'ts, then that's not Christianity at all. It completely misses the heart of Christianity. If there is no relationship behind our faith, regardless of what theology we, we ascribe to, we will never experience real change. At best, here's the best, at best, the change that we'll experience is that we're busy for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. 
But the vision that God has for us is far bigger than just changing a little block of our week. God is looking to transform us completely. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he tells us that beholding the glory of the Lord, that is Jesus, we are being transformed into the same image one degree at a time. This tells us that we become what, or, or rather we become who we behold. Who we abide with, who we're in relationship will determine what we are like. And as we abide in Jesus, we will inevitably become more like Jesus. Now that's good news. Because I don't, I don't know about you, I have some glaring character flaws. Right? There, there are things about me that I want to be reformed into what Jesus is like. There are quirks, there are habits, there are things that I just don't want to be part of anymore. And Jesus offers me an escape. He offers me trans transformation. And when we understand what Jesus is like, I think we all desire that. We, we, we see how Jesus is gracious and patient. He's wise. He's confident with assurance. He's at peace. He's honest. He's loving. He's kind. He's joyful. All of these characteristics are, are characteristics I hope that we all want to adopt for ourselves. Now, we might come to Jesus, and this is totally fine, come to Jesus hoping that, that Jesus would help us break free from old habits, maybe offer us better ones, newer, better ones. We come to Jesus hoping that, that we would find a people to belong to or, or a, a bigger mission to give our lives purpose. These are all things that Jesus imparts to us. Now, my observation is that the most drastic change, and this isn't, there, there are totally exceptions to this, but the most drastic change happens at the beginning of a relationship with Jesus. I think of my friend Sean from college. Uh, he was really into the party scene. I mean, he just was going for it. He was drinking, the girls, the drugs, skipping class. It, his life revolved around the party. And then something happened. Like Jesus showed up and met him where he was at. He met Jesus and everything changed. He moved out of his apartment with all of his buddies who were completely into the whole party scene as well. He moved in with Christian friends to get away from that. He voluntarily safeguarded his computer. He pursued sexual purity. He stopped getting drunk and doing drugs. He changed when he met Jesus, and it was huge change. Now, the reason he changed is that because he experienced the love of Jesus. He wasn't changing in order to get love from Jesus. He changed because he had already received love from Jesus. And now he knew to, to really grow in that relationship with Jesus, he had to let some of these things go. Now, not everyone's experience or coming to faith is that drastic. In fact, uh, I don't really know when I was saved. I, I grew up in the church, and, and I remember professing faith in Jesus when I was really young. But, but one of the, the big moments in my life was when I was in college, and I really feel like my relationship with Jesus was serious to me. And, and the biggest change in my life, and there's probably some really deep stuff that was changing that I just wasn't aware of, was I used to not like to read. Like, I hated reading. When I was in middle school, my mom paid for a reading tutor to just sit down and read with me, hoping that I'd kind of get the hang of it. Never did. 
But when I met Jesus, that all changed. I had a desire to, to engage in that relationship. I knew diving into God's word, studying, uh, reading other books were gonna help me in, in connecting with him. Now, I think every Christian can point to some sort of change that they've had in their life because of their relationship with Jesus. And for some of us, it was leaps and bounds, huge change. In others, it literally felt like one degree at a time. Think of it like a protractor. Right, if we're at degree zero, that's degree one. That's degree two. Three, slow, gradual change over time. Now, if we really understand who Jesus is, what he's like, it makes sense that we want to be more like him. We want to do the right things. But there are some things, some patterns in our life that seem insurmountable. Some besetting sins that no matter what we do, they, we just can't shake them. Maybe we have an addiction or a vice that looms large in our life. And we just look at it and we, we think, there's no way I can get around this. Or maybe we feel like we've plateaued, like we've experienced some growth and now we've come to a point where we're just kind of stagnant in our faith and we've lost interest or motivation to keep engaging with Jesus. Or maybe we don't even know where God wants to bring change in our life. We're just sort of, I am what I am sort of mentality. But here's the thing, as we learn to abide in Jesus, the Spirit reveals work that is to be done while giving us a vision for what the redeemed version of ourselves looks like. See, abiding in Jesus is the means for all that change. As we actively work to receive and to embrace, right, there's that active passive thing where we're working to receive God's love. Uh, to reuse an illustration from last week, think of it like sailing, if you go sailing, if you're a sailor, you're going you're gonna to set your sails in a certain way. You're going to position. There's things that you're going to do, but ultimately it's the wind that's going to pick you up and carry you. Abiding is like that. We're setting the sails to catch the wind of God's love. Now, as we're connected to God, as we're abiding in the love of Jesus, we are transformed and we experience this real life change and the last half of the passage that I've been delaying getting to uh, shows us two areas where we can expect to experience change in our life as we abide in Christ. Now these two things, it's sort of a dual function here because they, they both prove to be evidence that we're abiding in Jesus, but they also reinforce and deepen our experience of abiding. So finally, here we are. Let's grab our Bibles uh, John 15, we're going to start in verse 9 and 10. That was basically my whole last week's sermon, and I don't know how long that was, but verse 9 and 10. We're going to read here. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Jesus is talking to his disciples. So I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, the first way our abiding in Christ is practiced and reinforced is by obedience to God. Where Jesus says, keep my commands and you will abide in me. Now, if you isolate verse 10, this seems like we have to put forth effort first and then we get to experience abiding. But if you go back uh, to verse 3, 
Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now that word clean in the Greek, uh, it's sort of a play on words with the word prune. There's a lot of similarities in those two words. And so Jesus is having this play on words where he's saying, by being made clean, you've already been pruned. You've already been grafted into the vine. And so it's not saying obey and then you can get in. It's saying you're already in, so let's obey. Let's keep God's commands. And in doing so, we continue to obey, uh, abide. There's this perpetuating cycle that because you abide, you will obey. And because of obedience, you will deepen your ob- abiding. And so what we need to do here, when we, when we see this, we need to first remember that our abiding is initiated by God. He is the one who sets his love upon us first. We love because he first loved us. His love is what unites us to Jesus. And no matter what we do, we cannot improve upon that, abide, or that union with Christ, nor can we take away from it, that it's sustained And as we abide in this love, it transforms us into loving people. There's this domino effect. As the love of the Father is poured into the Son, the Son is pouring his love into his people. And then there's a reverse effect where the people return and reciprocate love for Jesus and then reciprocate love for God. And so there's just just mutual uh, transaction of love that's happening. And with over time, the more we abide, the, the more we abide, the, the more we move from indifference to infatuation. And when you love someone, your aim is to do right by them, is it not? If you really love someone, you, you want to, to express it in a way that, that supports them, that honors them, that shows them you care for them. It, it, it's an aim to please them. And so love brings with it sort of parameters. There's things that you will do and things that you won't do to better communicate your love for that other person, to foster that love. And so we can see how love, when when God gets to the heart and and he targets love, that changes our behavior. Now, I... I couldn't remember if this was C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller is one of those guys that I pull from a lot. They, they have a, an, a little, they encapsulate this here uh, with a little, um, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the right terminology is, but this little mini story. Just kind of envision this with me. They talk about this dynamic, how this dynamic of love and restriction uh, apply together and how that works out in the context of a romantic relationship. Just envision a young man who meets this beautiful, kind, sweet woman. And in that moment, he just, boom, he's, he is into her. He falls madly in love with her. And, and, and what happens is the more that he, he's with her, the more that love increases. And he has this desire to please her, right? To, to express his love for her in tangible ways. And so what he does, he starts cleaning up his apartment. His roommates are like, what's going on? Why are you cleaning, dude? Uh, but he's cleaning up his apartment. He's, he's taking her out on nice dates. He's sacrificing his own money that he would have spent on video games to, to, to bless her and to serve her. He's making an effort to, to trim up, to take a shower maybe once a day. He's doing all these things because he's expressing his love for her. And when she says she needs something, regardless of what that is, he, he makes a, an intentional effort to step into that and, and to meet that need. He jumps right on it. Now, this guy, his friends are looking at him, and, he, and they're probably thinking, dude, you are whipped. Like, she's got you wrapped around her finger. You're getting manipulated here. And, and they become concerned about him. 
Like maybe we need to have an intervention here. Maybe this girl is really no good for, for him. But, but all of this stuff seems to be pretty good changes. It's just out of the norm for him. And as the friends can see the external changes, they're, they're unable to see the internal affection that's really welling up in his heart. So those things that he does, those restrictions, the things that he does and doesn't do, those aren't oppressive to him. It's a delight for him to step into those things. This is because he's found a love that reaches to the depths of his soul. Now this is what obedience to God ought to be like for us. It's not this oppressive rules that we must follow and keep. We don't do this to get that. We've already had, we've already experienced the love. But our obedience ought to be heartfelt and joyful, willing obedience that's rooted in love. Because when you realize how deep the Father's love is for you, how deep Christ's love is for you, you are going to want to reciprocate. And this is not in order to be more loved. Listen to me. You cannot be more loved than what you already are. God's love has been set on you to the max, the height, the width, the depth. It can't even be measured. And it's just you're on blast with God's love. But the more we live in that, the more we experience it, the more that changes our heart and and changes our heart to lead us toward obedience. We, We get to, the intensity of God's love doesn't change. Our experience of God's love intensifies. And as our love for God increases over time, our obedience to God does too. Those two things are linked because where there is love, there is restriction. Where there's love, there is obedience. In fact, Jesus says, if you go back to John 14, he says this, if you love me, you will obey my commands. There's a link there. Now, I don't want to give the impression, because we can hear this and be like, oh, yeah, I love God, and I'm just obedience is going to gush right out of me. I, I think in some ways, yes, it will. Like the, the Spirit can show up and do incredible work right there in the moment, change your heart, your your affections are set, your obedience is stirred up. But there's some things that's gonna take time. It's gonna take a, a, a mindfulness and persistence to see obedience come up in our life. Because there's a lot of rebellion that is laced within our hearts due to, to the fall, due to the sin coming into this world. There are gonna be things in our life that we're just not there yet with things that we're not ready to really obey God with. Now, the reason why we don't want to obey isn't isn't a matter of behaving. It comes down to what we're loving. If we're loving God, Obedience comes out. So we have to examine ourselves. If there's this consistent pattern in my life of disobedience where I know that God wants me to do something, but I push against it because whatever reason, I've got to ask myself, what is it that I'm valuing? What is it that I'm setting my heart on? What is it I'm setting my heart on? 
Now, if we're knowingly living in unrepentant sin, like if you know you're doing wrong or you can feel that in your spirit, the spirit is convicting you of the things that you're doing or not doing, and we continue to live in that, maybe push it out and ignore it, that is going to affect your abiding with Christ. That's gonna affect the experience that you have of drawing on God's love. Now, listen to this. If you're in this season, if you feel like it's hard to obey in, in certain areas of your life, obedience is not only a product of our faith. Obedience is an act of faith. Listen to that. Obedience is an act of faith. What we can say, we can confess, God, I, I really don't want to do this right now. I, I, there's this thing in my life that I, I don't want to listen to you about, but I'm going to step into it and do it anyway because I'm trusting that you can change my heart in the act of doing this. In a sense... Obedience is like a, letter, a liturgy that aids us in experiencing abiding in God's love. Now this is where the promise in verse 10 is so sweet. Right? Keep my commandments and abide in my love. Now, God doesn't, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't get too specific about what commandments he's specifically talking about. We can assume that it's a comprehensive view of, of these commandments to live a righteous and holy life before God, listening to him, letting his voice be the, the, the directing and determining factor in all things. But, but he goes on to get specific about a commandment, a very specific commandment in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. See, abiding in God's love not only generates a love for God and for Christ and for the Spirit, but a love for others, especially our Christian brothers and sisters. In fact, this is one of the most tangible evidences in our life if we are abiding in Christ's love, that the Jesus in me loves the Jesus in you. If the Spirit is working in your life, the love of the Father coming to the Son, the love of the Son coming to us, and vice versa. The Spirit is also at work helping the Jesus in me love the Jesus in you. Now, I think there's a pretty common phenomenon today in cultural Christianity where people say, you know what, I love Jesus. He paid for my sins. He gave me a new life. But this whole church deal, I can, I can take it and leave it. You know, I, I don't want anything to do with it. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've experienced... Uh, a church that hasn't practiced abiding. It's been more of sort of a, a breeding grounds for hypocrisy and judge, judgment. But a love for God does not allow us to say, I'll take Jesus, but not his church. To do that is to reject Jesus. Because as we love God, love for our brothers and sisters will increase as well. Not, not just in theory, not just in like I think well of you and, and I have a high regard for you, but in real practical ways. Right? That we begin to care for one another, meeting physical needs. Now as a church, we, we can see this within the context of our missional community a lot of the time. Somebody will come to missional community and say, brothers and sisters, I am in some tough financial times. Could you help me? And the, the missional community gathers around and, and they chip in a little bit here, a little bit there, try to get that person to where they need to be. Maybe we're doing home projects together. Somebody, somebody's fence falls down, we go help them put them up, or a room, tree falls on your house, they're gonna help you fix your house. 
We're going to provide meals for each other. That's one of the things our family's been blessed by is the way that we've been served and uh, just having a baby, people bringing meals to our front door. Watching each other's kids. Like there are real tangible ways that we can express love to one another. But I think there's a way to do those things, to, to do the external things, to go through the motions and still have a hard heart toward our brothers and sisters. And so in this sense, the love that, that Jesus is calling to is more than just throwing money or resources at someone. He's asking us to invest ourselves into that person, that we would pour ourselves out to God as an act of worship, but to our brothers and sisters as a way of blessing them. So we intercede for each other in prayer. We walk through tough times together in uh, marital dysfunction. We celebrate together. We fight, okay? If you're in a family, you're gonna fight. There's gonna be conflict. But we resolve in the gospel instead of walking away from each other. We sacrifice for one another. That's what verse 13 is pointing us to. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, we might read this and think like this means I'm gonna, if a, some, for some reason a grenade comes through my living room window and I'm at my buddy's house, I'm gonna jump on this grenade and absorb it forever, like laying down my life. Okay, there's a real sense in Christian love where we're willing to die for one another. There are countless uh, episodes throughout Christian history where we see Christian community putting their lives on the line for the improvement and the betterment of their brothers and sisters. Now in our context, we don't live in a war zone. We're not facing a big plague. We're, we're, we're not, the threat of death is not something that comes up every day. However, every day contains an opportunity for us to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters in laying down our preference, in laying down my wants and desires to better serve and to bless the other. This is self-denial. This, this is really what Jesus calls every Christian to when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Come to Jesus, be ready to die to yourself. And in dying to yourself, you'll live, you'll give away more of your life, you'll experience more blessing, more of God's grace coming down upon you. This Christian love the willingness to lay down our life for one another is what will sustain churches for the long haul. If we're just together because we like the music that gets played or, or there's a piece of the church that we're inclined toward, eventually that's going to frustrate us. Eventually our feelings are going to get hurt. Something's going to happen. Conflict will arise and we're like, deuces, I'm out of here. But if we have this self-denying love for one another, this will sustain us for the long haul. Now make no mistake here. I'm, I'm closing up here. This call to obedience can be overwhelming. Absolutely. To obey God's commandments, to love one another in a way where you lay down your life for someone, this is not a small feat. And if you try it long enough, you certainly will fail. But here's good news for us, that Jesus never calls us to do something that he hasn't already done for us. Jesus has skin in the game. 
Jesus perfectly obeyed all of God's commandments on our behalf. Jesus laid down his life for his friends, for us sinners. Actually, before we became Jesus' friends, he were, we were his enemies. Jesus laid down his life for his enemies to make us his friends. And in verse 15, this whole agricultural vine branch uh, illustration takes a really personal turn. Let me find it. He says, uh, verse 15, no longer do I call you servants because a servant does what the master tells, right? The lordship of Jesus always remains, that he is our master, that we are his servants. But here Jesus says, you know what? You're not just my servants. No longer do I call you servants for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You see, we aren't just branches on a vine. We are, we are not just servants meant to mindlessly and heartlessly obey the master. We are Jesus' friends. That he came and he initiated a relationship with us when our hearts were not inclined toward him at all. In fact, the next verse goes on. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He poured out his love upon us first before we were even looking for it. Now, if you've been in a romantic relationship, one of the most intimidating parts of a, of a relationship is that first time somebody says, I love you, right? It's like, well, are they going to say it back? Is it just going to be me? Are they going to say, I love you? Okay, right? It could, could go poorly. But in the gospel, we have already received the eternal I love you from God our Father demonstrated in Christ the Son in his life, death, resurrection. That he went to the cross for our sins. He died and was resurrected to give us new life so that we could abide in Christ. See, Jesus tells us I love you and that he proves it. And now in response to that love in which he initiates, we respond we, we jump back into that love. Now, I realize there's a deficit here in these words that I'm, I'm communicating because no matter what I do, no matter how I try to frame it, no matter what I, what I try to communicate, I will never, ever, ever be able to correctly articulate the vastness, the depth, the sweetness of God's love. It's like, it's like trying to, to describe to you the sweetness of honey. You, you, I can tell you it's gooey, it's got a sweet, like it's just insufficient. You don't know it until you experience it. And listen, if you are not a Christian, or maybe you're a Christian, maybe your heart's kind of been hard toward God and you just don't really feel like you're connected to that love. Listen, God is trying to woo you back to him this morning. God wants you to know how deeply your love. He looks at you. He sees your imperfections, your weaknesses, your sin. And he sets his love on you. How radical is that? Before you're worthy of love, God just dumps it on you. You don't need to get your act together. You don't have to straighten up and fly right. God, God's love is going to do that with time. The more you bask in it, the more you connect to it, the more you will change. But listen, do not pass God up on this love. 
Do not, do not sidestep this profound mystery that the God of the universe loves dust like you and me. Now, Jesus, there's these two sections to obey God's commands, right, to keep his commands, and there's this other section to, to love one another. And these two sections get wrapped up with a statement that goes like this. Here's why I'm telling you to do these things. Now, in verse 11, Jesus says, to love and obey God, right, in, in loving and obeying God, his joy may be in us, and that joy would be full. When we experience the love of the Father, obedience is a joy. It is, it's as if God, if joy has been implanted in us and living out of that joy now means we are being obedient to God. In verse 17, he says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. See, uh, abiding in Jesus is more than just learning to do the right thing. Abiding in Jesus is to cultivate a loving heart, a joyful heart. Now, this is evidence that Jesus is in us and that we are in him. Because of our union with Christ, Jesus is actually inside of us. It's not I who lives, but it's Christ in me who lives. So therefore, any act of obedience isn't muscled out by myself. It is the love of Christ. It is Jesus himself expressing obedience through me. Any love for brothers and sisters in the faith or, or even people outside of the faith community, because Jesus had lots and lots of love for outsiders. Any act of love towards someone else is not me mustering up love. It is the love of Christ being conveyed through me. This is what it looks like to live an abiding life, to be dependent upon Jesus for all that he's called us to. See, the Christian life is not about doing stuff for God. It's about having a relationship with Jesus where he flows out of you. Now listen, we're gonna come to the Lord's table. I think this is the most special part of our gathering because something profound happens here when we come to the Lord's table together. Jesus says that when, it, when, when two or more are gathered, uh, he is present with us, but there's something special. There's a mystery that happens in coming and taking the sacraments that Jesus instructed us to take. And what's communicated here in this meal is the length that God went to in order to offer us a relationship with himself, that he would send his only son to the cross to take the blame for all of our sin and that he would pardon us. He would give us a new life, the ability to be connected to the God of the universe. Friends, let us come this morning with grateful hearts for what God has done. Let us come with joy welling up. Let us come ready to receive the love of the Father and ready to dispense it on whoever God would put in our path for our good, and for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. Uh, Father, we are unworthy. We don't deserve it, yet you have, you have called orphans. You've called the lost to be found. You've called us to be your children and to abide in you. Help us, Father. We ask, this is, uh, this is, as a pastor, this is my deepest wish for our church, that we would abide in you. Help us, Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.